Please join with me as we read from Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended, Every temptation he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught at their synagogues, being glorified by all. So says the word. Thank you, Ray. Morning again, everyone. So it's kind of fitting that we start this new chapter in Jesus' life in his ministry, the week after we finished our Christmas message, which we kind of talked about how Christmas is the culmination uh, of the entire redemptive history. And so now we get to Christmas, we see that, yes, God had this plan since the beginning of time, and then here it culminates in the birth of Jesus, and then we look at this 30-year, uh, three-year period, and then, or 30 years since he was born, his three-year ministry, and then we get to you know, what really bridges that gap between God and man. Uh, this passage has been used many, many times, different, many ways. As I prepared this, I think I was telling Scott, I could have had four sermons on it. So buckle up, we're going to be here for an hour and a half. Um, I'm exaggerating there, of course. But there's so many biblical truths in this passage. We're going to see Jesus' humanity, Jesus' frailty. Um, it was really hard to kind of pick out what I thought was the, this is what the Lord has for us. But it really, as you see our title, uh, In God, actually, it's Do You Trust God was the title. I just got thrown off by that banner there. Uh, Do You Trust God? And as we see here, Jesus trusts even God the Father throughout this ministry and throughout this example that we see here. So I think today we're going to look at these questions and the, the, the points are in the back of your bulletin. Do you trust God or do you trust yourself? This is the crux, I think, of what we're looking at today. Do you trust God for your daily bread? Do you trust, trust that the plans God has for you are for your good? Do you trust that God is sovereign over all things? So I think these are the points that we'll probably focus on today. So let's pray before we dive into it. Father God, do we trust you? You are a magnificent God who created the entire universe with your, with your words and yet, we humans try so hard to control every aspect. I pray, Lord God, that through this passage, through the preaching of your word, we will see that you are worthy of our trust. In your name we pray. 
starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Right? So we look at this passage that Ray just read, and we see these temptations that come to Jesus, right? It's, it, the, the wording here is kind of like a barrage of temptations. It's not like Jesus just kind of had this a be- beautiful, amazing time of meditation and fasting and just a spiritual journey, and then Satan comes with, with you know, really quick little temptations, and Jesus just boom, 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 defeats them all and moves on with his life. I think the, the wording here kind of makes it look like it's a, a continual time of temptation, and these three temptations may have been the only ones that actually were presented, but it's also uh, likely that this is kind of a, a representation of the time of temptation that Jesus faced, right? It boiled down to these three. Look at the language here. It says, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil, right? And he ate nothing during those days. So that even in itself kind of says, like, this is an ongoing time of temptation. It's not like this was temptation, 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 answer, temptation, answer, boom, next, move on, right? This is a time of temptation. Um, This isn't just checking a box, see, Jesus was tempted and he didn't sin, right? This is showing his humanity in this. These are legitimate temptations that he faced. Matthew and Luke both show us that this happens right after he is um, anointed by the Holy Spirit, right after his baptism. You know, we read in Luke chapter 3, it says, When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we see the Holy Spirit literally in the form of a dove descending on Jesus. We hear the audible voice of God, the Father, blessing Jesus, affirming him, and then instantly it says he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness... Right? This is a very intense time in the spiritual realm. Can you see this? We saw this with the birth of Jesus and the angels and the star and all the stuff that's going on. And now we see it here, the baptism, the Holy Spirit, and then going into this wilderness. Right? And so in the midst of all that's going on, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus to the wilderness, and it, it gives us the reason for this time. It says, to be tempted by the devil, to confront Satan, to proactively be in confrontation with the devil. It says, Matthew says it this way. He says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Luke says, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. I think the implication here is this was intentional. This was intentional. Jesus wasn't out there doing his thing and the, Holy Spirit, and the devil walked by and said, here's an opportunity The Holy Spirit led. He moved Jesus to the wilderness. And for some, but I think pretty clearly explicit reason, Satan was tempted for 40 days, truly to face his temptation. I think maybe it was to feel the weight of his humanity as he begins to manifest his deity. I don't know exactly why the Holy Spirit would lead Jesus head on to this confrontation with Satan, but perhaps... Perhaps as Jesus is about to begin his earthly ministry, as he's about to, and we'll see at the end of this chapter, he'll about to just start preaching the word, and we know what happens. Maybe this is 
to give him a little bit of that understanding of that, just fully understand the, the humans that he's going to be witnessing to, how frail we are, to bring compassion to us. When I was 17, I bought a truck off my neighbor. My dad's sitting here, he'll remember this. And I was excited. And I was dumb because I was a 17-year-old male, no offense. And I was driving around these dirt roads in my neighborhood, just kind of feeling the tires. And, oh, I got my own set of wheels. And this is literally in the first week. And I'm driving around these back roads. And I'm slipping and sliding around. And I come around a corner too quickly. And I ran into a tree. This is not my finest moment. But to make it worse, here I am. I'm angry at myself. I'm so mad. My hard-earned money that I paid for myself went into this truck, and I just damaged it. It was drivable. It just crumpled the front end, broke the headlight, that kind of stuff. But then I was embarrassed, and I knew my friends were rightly going to make fun of me for the rest of my life. And so, and so, what did I do? Here I am, have these emotions welling up inside of me. I say, oh, oh, man, I was driving, and, and some guy on a mountain bike darted out in front of me, and I, I swerved, and I slammed in the brakes, and I hit a tree. My dad may not even know this is the true story right now, by the way. And so, like, even here I am, making up this plausible lie. This wasn't about insurance. I didn't have full coverage. I wasn't gaining anything. But I was so emotional and stressed and full of anxiety that I lied about it just to save myself embarrassment. Right? And I look back on this incident. Yeah, it's a lie, but... But my heart rate was up. I was shaking. Have you guys ever been in a car accident? You're shaking. The emotions just kind of gets to you. I'm embarrassed. I feel dumb. I knew everyone was going to make fun of me. Perhaps you've had an incident like this that something just makes your blood boil and you can't really even control your emotions at the time. Imagine that kind of feeling, right? So this is how we can feel as humans. And then you get a well-placed temptation, an incentive to sin, and what can seem kind of like as a simple little, like, man, just tell everyone the truth, can now turn into this real moral crisis. So when Scripture says Jesus was tempted, I want us to see, make no mistake, Jesus was really tempted. This was not just a quick little proof text to show, oh, see, he chose not to sin because he's perfect, because he's God. He was truly tempted. He was tormented. He was starving, literally starving. He was exhausted. Right? Jesus was human, fully God, fully man. So don't write off like, oh, well, he's God. Of course he's not going to sin. When was the last time you went 40 days without food? The torment and temptation Jesus felt at this time was real. And what we see in Hebrews here, Hebrews chapter 4, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. For one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is, this is kind of like context of this passage and in context of Jesus' humanity and frailty. Jesus was tempted, therefore... Since Jesus was tempted, since he is able to empathize and sympathize with our weaknesses, okay, so what does that give us? That gives us someone that we can draw near to with confidence. Confidence that we will receive mercy and grace. 
Grace is unfounded favor. Mercy is unfounded forgiveness. This scripture right here in Hebrews is saying, since Jesus was fully man, he was fully tempted. He felt this draw of sin, as we'll look at these temptations, deeply in his soul. He truly can relate to us. When we sin, he's not some heavy-handed being that's trying to crush us, right? He's not your high school football coach. He's compassionate. He's more like a father we'll see on the playground when their toddler falls off a structure and gets hurt, right? It's come to me. Let me hug you. Let me make this better. Yes, there's time for, now did we learn our lesson? And there's time for little spankings on the bottom. But first and foremost, it is open arms that we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. This is the promise we have because we have a Savior who was fully man. This is an amazing encouragement. Moving on to verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. So we mentioned Jesus was famished. The human body is not made. I mean, I think I've seen studies that, yes, you can go up to and exactly 40 days without food nearabouts. When your kids come home from playing and say they're starving to death, I promise you they're not. Jesus, in this case, was not exaggerating. The physical pain was excruciating. His body was eating itself. The fatigue was unimaginable. Without calorie intake, you are dragging. We've been there at some level, but not like this. Have you guys ever seen the show Alone? Which is basically a game show on TV where you're starving to death slowly, trying not to die, and the prize is half a million dollars. This, I mean, Jesus wasn't alone in the wilderness starving to death. He wasn't trying to win a million dollars. He wasn't even accidentally lost and just wandering around. He was being obedient to the Holy Spirit, but his body was weak. And in his fasting at this point, at his weakest point physically, and again, likely throughout, Satan comes to tempt him. Satan says, turn this bread to stone and you won't die. Turn this, this I'm sorry, turn this stone to bread. Turn this stone to bread and, and all this pain goes away, Jesus. This is what Satan's bringing him. And yet we look at Jesus' answer. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. This isn't exactly a logical answer, right? What's a logical answer? Look, Satan, I'm doing this for like a spiritual cleanse, okay? Get away from me. Right? This is intentional. I know what I'm doing here. He's not even saying, no, I don't want to. He's saying, by his answer showing us, by quoting scripture, by putting his trust in God the Father for his answer, he's saying, I'm not relying on my own logic and my own arguments. Here's what the Word of God says. I trust God the Father. And we see time and time again through Jesus' life how he trusts God the Father. I don't have time to get into an explanation in depth about the Godhead, the Trinity, fully God, fully man. But the fact is, Jesus was God. Jesus was in heaven with the Father. The Word became flesh and came to earth. But yet, even still, he trusts God the Father time and time again. He's saying, I trust that God will provide for me. I trusted God to lead me here, and I trust that God will provide food for me when the time is right. Trusting in God should be universal to all of us. 
If the Son of God humbles himself to trust the Father, how can we do any less? A couple chapters then later in Matthew after, this, Matthew, after the story in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching how to pray. And we know this by heart. We could, we could probably recite it. But it says, give us this day our daily bread. In the Old Testament, we saw the Israelites, they wandered around the desert. You're probably familiar with this. They leave Egypt and they wander for years and years and years. And at some point, they were struggling to get food. I don't know what level of starvation they were, but they're begging, we need food. And as God is using this period to shape his people and to build this trust on him, he says, okay, okay, I will provide this bread from heaven daily, this manna for you. But, but please don't go out and collect more than you can that day. Collect your day's bread, your daily bread. This is literally what we see in the book of Exodus chapter 16. Go out and collect one day's portion. And on the sixth day, since I want you to keep the Sabbath holy, go collect two days portion. But that's it. Naturally, the Israelites, some stockpiled, some gathered more than their share. And it tells us, uh, what's this phrase here? Some left part of it till morning and it bred worms and stank. Do you think that the God of heaven and earth who can send manna from heaven to provide for his people, have it on the sixth day last for two days, could have just, like, wouldn't it have just gone a little crunchy, a little stale, but it bred worms and stank. Why is this? Why is this? How many of us are so reliant on ourselves to solve every problem we have? But where does God want us? Where does God want us? Do you trust the Lord for your daily bread? Do you trust God for your practical needs? The Israelites of thousands of years ago, they struggled with the same thing that we struggle with today, which is the same thing that Satan is tempting Jesus with, the same thing the serpent tempted Adam and Eve with. Are you sure God knows what he's doing? Are you sure you can trust him? Are you sure he's got this? Do you trust God? Do you trust God for your daily bread? The Israelites could see bread magically appear and still hoard it and not trust that that bread will be there tomorrow. Trying to store up and preserve for themselves. One of my favorite uh, parables, we bring it up often at this church, is Luke chapter 12, the rich man. I'll save you the entire story right now, but what does he say? The one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. The one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. If you're not rich here today, I'm not going to tell you why you're not rich. I'm not going to explain why life is hard, either financially or emotionally or physically. Right? I know all about the economy and 15-minute cities and elites and eat the bugs, right? We can go down any rabbit trail you want. But I will tell you that you are where God wants you. If you are fully trusting God for all of your needs, you are where God wants you. When you do that, then you're rich towards God. When you're self-sufficient, you're not. And that's true. It is a far better place to be in the arms of a loving God than taking care of yourself. Moving on to verse 5, our second of the temptations. And the devil took him up, and they showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment, moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. 
and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, clearly we see this in all three of them. Jesus answers again out of the wisdom of God, out of the scripture, out of a trust for God the Father and his infinite wisdom, not his own logic, not his own arguments. But the devil shows him the world in a moment of time. I want us to kind of picture like Matthew and Luke don't dwell on the possibilities of that and how that happened. It's most likely just some sort of vision, right? And so Satan shows him this entire world. And this world that we're talking about is not what I would want, which is cows grazing on a pasture and be left alone. This vision is of the geopolitical world, of societies, of the Roman Empire, whatever you have, the known world with governments and people. This is further established by the fact that Satan has offered him authority over this. And we'll look about why that is, right? But the question is, first question is, how does Satan have the, even the authority to make this offer? How is Satan able to say, I will give this to you? Well, Scripture tells us Satan does have some measure of control and authority over the kingdoms of this world. With sin pervasive in this world, as we've seen throughout the entire Old Testament, um, Satan does have a very strong foothold. God is ultimately in control. Please don't doubt that. God is ultimately in control of all things. God can and does all things according to his will. But for a time, there is no way around it. Satan has authority in this world. I don't know why. I don't know why. If you look at the book of Job, what do we see? Satan going through the earth, seeking whom he may devour. We see this passage right here. Jesus doesn't say, whoa, 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 that's not yours to give, buddy. Jesus just disputes him scripturally. In John 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's saying the Holy Spirit will come, and he says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about those who are perishing in their sin, and he says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, right? And is it even so much of a stretch to see that Satan has control over this world? Pick up a newspaper. Read the headlines. He has power over this earth. We see this in this passage. We see this even in Satan's given the place to tempt Jesus. Satan is allowed to do his thing because of God's will. And this is God's will for mankind, and it's God's will for the angelic beings, fallen and unfallen. When good things, when bad things happen to good people, I don't have the answer, but I do know that it is for the will of God. Yes, Satan and sin and death, but ultimately for our good and for God's glory. That is a truth. So in this temptation, we see Jesus being Uh, tempted by Satan to have this authority over the world, to be given authority over the nations, the people, to have some measure of control over the people. And the reason is because Jesus did not come as a political ruler. He came as a sacrifice. Sin and death are the rulers of this world, and and Jesus came to die for payment for that sin, to bridge that gap. But this is not something Jesus was looking forward to. We see that in his prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane. This was not the desired outcome Jesus was looking forward to. 
So Satan's offering a way out of that. Hey, hey, we know what your future holds, or you do. Worship me, and I'll hand it all over to you. Here's the easy way out. You don't have to go through with this plan. I'll just give you all the power and authority you want. God, God has the hard road for you. I'll give you the easy road. This is what Satan is offering. Adam and Eve took this deal. Adam and Eve, do you, do you really think God knows what he's doing when he says, don't eat of this tree? Trust me, I'll give you more knowledge than you can ever imagine. This is what he's saying. But Jesus, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, is the second Adam, the one to make it right. Jesus did not fall for these lies and for these temptations. Jesus fully trusted in God the Father. How, how tempting is it for us to trust in ourselves for everything? We just saw in the daily bread. How tempting is it for us to control everything? I'm a control enthusiast. I get this. I understand that. Type A, whatever you want to call it. It is so easy for me to see problems and say, here's everything I can do to solve that. Right? And there is measures of good stewardship and being wise and making good decisions and taking counsel from others. But at the end of the day, trust God. Lift up your cares to Him. Trusting God is not just the best option. It truly is the only option. Verse 9, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hand they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had entered every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is an interesting one, if you ask me. First temptation, very, very practical. You're starving to death. Just, just make yourself some food, right? Okay, well, that makes sense. That appeals to my physical frailty right now. The second one, here's God's plan for your life. That road is hard and painful and ends with suffering and death. I will just take that off your plate and give it to you this way. Also, makes sense on a practical level. But this third one? What's this one? Hey, don't throw your, go ahead and throw yourself off this really tall building. Prove to me that God will save you. How is this a tempting offer? Perhaps it was a swing at Jesus' pride. They say, if you're really the son of God, perhaps at Jesus' weakness, in a state he would desire to come back with that one. Certainly Satan knows he's the son of God. This is not a, a, a taunt with any sort of validity. How is this a tempting offer? Go throw yourself out this building. I think, I think Jesus' answer here kind of shows the heart of this temptation when he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Why should we not put the Lord our God to a test? Why is this the right answer? That test says, I don't trust you. I don't believe you. Prove it to me. You say these things. You say these things in your word. I don't know if they're trustworthy. I need you to prove that to me. This isn't about Jesus' physical protection when Satan's saying, oh, the angels will catch you, right? Notice Satan's trying to use scripture against Jesus. But we know Jesus suffers physical pain and even death. That's why he came. 
This is about trusting that God is who he says he is, that God is worthy of our faith and our trust. Satan saying, look, you claim to be the son of God. Prove to us that God loves you and will keep his word to you. How many tempting offers in our life are born of pride or desire to be vindicated? I could think of several. An important part of this passage makes it clear that Jesus was fully human, not just in his physical needs, but in his emotion, in his thoughts. Don't you think that at this temptation, Jesus would have felt that pull, that desire, that pride? Oh, yeah? Let me show you. Watch this. Like, even the desire to sink down to Satan's level. Otherwise, this temptation wouldn't have been a real temptation. That must have been part of this. Satan, Satan is wily and dangerous. Satan looks to come to us at our weakest times, at your weakest point, right? Whether that's finances, lust, attention, pride, control, whatever it is, whatever you're weak in, when you are weak, Satan and his minions are looking to come get you. And we, unfortunately, are going to be tempted over and over again in this lifetime. And we're often going to be tempted when we're least prepared to face this temptation. Not when you're at your strongest. Sarah and I met when we were 16 and 17 years old at a church camp. And have you guys ever been to church camp? Anyone been to a church camp? Not a lot of hands going up. All right. Church camps. They take a bunch of youth or adults, right? Take you up junior high, high school some beautiful mountain setting, away from school, away from friends, away from parents, away from chores, get weighted on hand and foot. Sure, you might have kitchen duty or whatever. And what do they do? They bring you in this beautiful, serene setting with trees, a lot of Bible stories and singing. And who are you with? You're not even with most of your friends. You're with strangers. You get to be the best version of who you want to be. And so you're in this camp setting you're in your cabins at night. You have a great camp counselor. There's going to be a campfire time. And there's going to be singing and there's going to be testimony night. Kids are going to start crying. People actually come to faith at these church camps. I know this, right? The day you walk out of that camp, you're on what we call a camp high. You can do no wrong. This is it. I'm here. I'm committed for life. Right? And you get that temptation. Get thee behind me, Satan. You're strong. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. What happens six months from now after you have to go back to school or work and deal with the same old, same old day in and day out of annoying brothers and chores? It's a different story, I think. Here, Jesus was at his weakest point. He's near starvation, physically spent, physically drained. That, that really takes a toll on you emotionally, emotionally drained as well. We know he is because at the end we see the angels come to minister to him. So Jesus is physically and emotionally drained at his weakest point. Remember, he is truly a human. Fully God, fully man. And Satan comes to him at this time. Satan sees his opening. Thankfully, Jesus resisted that. But how are we to resist? How are we to resist what are we, at our weak times? I think James 4 gives us the answer here. Verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, 
and he will draw near to you. This is that camp high. This is the way. This is what Jesus does here. He submits himself to God. He draws near to God. Brothers and sisters, life is not a sprint. It is not sustainable. It is a marathon. Run the race with endurance. There are times when things are going to be easy for you and finances and family and health and everything's going great, right? And there's going to be times when life is beating you down and it is challenging and it is hard. Bad news upon bad news and tough circumstances. Sometimes even as Jess talked about of your own making, right? Sometimes we bring our own misery on us, but it doesn't mean it's not there. Physical pain, even death. What's our answer? Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Submit yourselves to God, as James tells us, as we see our Savior doing in this example. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Jesus doesn't use his own strength here to argue with Satan. Jesus doesn't have a list of witty comebacks. Jesus points to the word of God. Jesus submits himself to the authority of God the Father. He says, it's not about me, it's about the word of God. And Satan Satan fled. This This is what James tells us, Satan flees. This isn't working. This is our hope and our promise as well. Bury yourself in the word of God. Be in faith, be in community. Yes, be in fellowship, even here at this church, throughout the week. Don't be that sheep that's left the pack and is wandering around looking to be picked up by a wolf. Like a child who looks around the grocery store and they're distracted by something and they look up and they realize that their mom and dad are lost and they look around and they find them. What do they do? They run over that mom and dad. They bury their face right there in their mom. Don't ever leave me again, right? That's the picture I want us to have of going to the Father. Bury yourselves in the outstretched arms of the God who wants to care for you and protect you and love you and comfort you. Put yourselves there and watch Satan flee. It's not always easy. I know this, but it is the scriptural answer. Verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit of Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. By the way, that the, their synagogues, again, Luke, the author, writing to a Gentile audience, See, he taught in their synagogues. This is how you, here's how his fame was spread among the Hebrews, the Israelites. Remember, Jesus lived a fairly normal life up until this point, right? He was a carpenter's son. He was a man walking around doing life. He lived in a town. He was known. And then the multitudes of many people saw him baptized by John the Baptist, saw the Holy Spirit descend upon him. And right, and he walks out, he has this 40-day period where he is filled with the Holy Spirit, confronting Satan, tempted, and then he comes back and he begins his ministry. It says he returns to Galilee full of the Holy Spirit, and he begins teaching in the synagogue, and he's being praised by all who hear him, right? And this, there's a new teacher on the scene. He's here, and he's teaching in a way that has the authority of who he is. And people are blessed, and people are praising him. This right here is the beginning of this journey, the beginning of the end. Everything we've looked at up until this last this section, culminating in our Christmas message, this beginning up to right now is setting the stage for the most important three years 
of human history. As we're going to be looking at over the next several months, Jesus walked this earth, Jesus changed history, and Jesus ultimately, as we'll see in the coming months, pays for our sins with his death on the cross as that sacrificial lamb, allowing us to be called children of God. Let's pray. Father God, your word is beautiful, your word is faithful. We are frail and weak. It is hard to draw near to you when we are hurting, when we are sad, and when we're tempted, Lord God. Yet we know you want nothing more than to wrap your loving arms around your children, to be that true loving father to us. I pray that as we diminish, as we see you increase in our lives, that you will give us that strength and that hope and that belief to even come to you with our problems, Lord God. We see so little of this world and of your plan, and we try to do so much. Let us be those innocent, sweet toddlers clinging to you, Lord God, knowing that our daddy has us and will carry us through every fire and trial for our good and for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.